Disc 2 London had a completely unrealistic notion of what might be won. Attlee's cabinet refused the early U.S. offers and held out vainly for better ones. Keynes, ill with a heart complaint and surviving on ice packs and sodium amatal capsules throughout a sweltering autumn, was trapped by the exuberance of his earlier self-confidence. He described the mood as absolute hell. The core of the trouble was that the Americans did not quite believe how broke the British Empire really was, nor did they much care. Powerful players in Washington may have been sentimental about the common struggle that had just ended, but were unsentimental about empires and the new world order that must now be built. This was not a game of equal players. Every time the British turned down an American offer, the next offer was worse. An angry Keynes wrote back to his mother, They mean us no harm, but their minds are so small, their prospects so restricted, their knowledge so inadequate, their obstinacy so boundless, and their legal pedantry so infuriating. May it never fall to me to persuade anyone to do what I want, with so few cards in my hand. I am beginning to use up my physical reserves. Eventually, though the effort would contribute to his death early the following year, Keynes's hoped-for gift or interest-free loan of around six billion dollars had shrunk to a fifty-year loan of three point seven five billion dollars at two percent interest. In addition, the Americans required that within a year of the loan starting, pounds should be freely exchangeable for dollars, so removing a traditional protective wall from London. Alongside British agreement for the new Washington-dominated international financial system, this placed the country firmly under the economic control of the United States, which, through the later 40s and early 50s, would also be steadily advancing into former British markets round the world. It was a moment of truth for the country, as stark as the fall of Singapore or Dunkirk. The loan was not finally paid off until 2006, well into Tony Blair's time at number 10. So part of the story of post-war Britain was set. The new financial system made future financial crises inevitable, and they duly followed under Attlee, Eden, Macmillan, Wilson and Callaghan. Each time, Britain's weak economy meant another run on the pound, as the world, and particularly the United States, sold sterling, causing inflation and a slump in investment. Neither the starkness of the crisis nor the inevitable long-term repercussions were ever fully grasped by the country. This was the moment when the British government could have honestly explained to the people how grave the country's situation really was. Instead, Attlee and his ministers hid their dismay about the underlying weakness of Britain's hand, the brutal treatment of Lord Keynes in Washington, and, later, the equally brutal repudiation of Britain's claim to nuclear cooperation. War-trained and proud, they put on a good face. The new Chancellor, Hugh Dalton, claimed that he valued the settlement very highly, and instructed MPs to welcome it. The Economist, generally the most pro-American British publication, retorted, We are not compelled to say we like it. Our present needs are the direct consequence of the fact that we fought earlier, that we fought longest, and that we fought hardest. But in Parliament, after the devastating events of the past few years, it seemed there was little energy left for outrage or debate. One action was taken immediately. Within months of the end of the war, the characteristic sounds of the Royal Navy changed. The thunder of guns and the pounding of turbines gave way to a great clanging from Portsmouth to the Clyde, a smashing of hammers and a hissing of flame. The thud 
and the sparks of destruction as one by one the great ships were destroyed. By 1946, when the Russians were beginning to build an even bigger surface and submarine fleet than they had had during their Great Patriotic War, 840 British warships had already been struck off the Navy list, and a further 727 in various stages of construction had been abruptly cancelled. By the time the new Admiral of the Fleet, Lord Fraser, took over in 1948, a total of 10 battleships, 20 cruisers, 37 aircraft carriers, 60 destroyers, and 80 corvettes had been sent to the scrap heap. This was an extraordinary rate of destruction. Fraser, who had worked with the U.S. Navy in the Pacific and survived a kamikaze attack and who therefore understood the need for modernization, now had to deal with a demoralized and stunned Royal Navy. Battleships whose names read like a history lesson, Nelson, Rodney, Valiant, were broken up. New battleships and aircraft carriers whose names read like an optimistic prospectus for a revived empire, which had been ordered to project British power around the world into the 60s, ships such as Lion, Malta, New Zealand, Eagle, Gibraltar and Africa were abruptly cancelled. Britain's very last battleship, HMS Vanguard, was completed on the Clyde. Too late for the war, she survived to take the King and future Queen Elizabeth to South Africa for an unsuccessful Commonwealth-boosting trip and then functioned as a training ship before she too was towed away and broken up. Ninety British warships were towed out to sea and used for target practice until they broke up and sank. Hundreds more were taken to the breakers' yards and painstakingly disassembled back into piles of torn, rust-softened steel. Some were sold to small countries, which had hardly had navies before. The U.S. Navy had proved that aircraft carriers were an indispensable part of modern global war, but Britain could afford only a few, relatively small ones. So one British carrier was given to the French as a free loan until they could pay for her. Another was loaned to the Dutch, and two were offloaded at half price to the Australians. The inaptly named Terrible ended as an uncompleted hulk sitting in the Gare Loch near Glasgow. Some smaller ships were mothballed, shrouded with nets, which were then sprayed with plastic and treated with electrolysis to stop their bottoms rotting. Initially, seagulls proved worryingly keen to eat the plastic. Meanwhile, inside their cocoons, the ship's poor-quality wartime steel rotted anyway. Vessels which had protected the convoys which helped keep Stalin's Russia fighting, or shepherded food and fuel convoys across the Atlantic, or had rescued the British Army from Dunkirk, or which had been in at the kill in the Pacific, Ships whose names went back to Nelson's Navy, and whose captains came from West Country families which could trace their service just as far. Almost all of them went, and very quickly. This is little remembered. It is as if the nation engaged in a giant act of smashing, the quiet murder of its nautical self, out of sight, out of mind. Of the 880,000 men and women serving in the Royal Navy towards the end of the war, Nearly 700,000 had left two years later. The admirals fought back. If we are to hold our world position, we must maintain our sea power, said the admiralty. Using an argument already hopelessly out of date, the deputy director of naval planning, Captain Godfrey French, protested that a force of two major fleets, with battleships and carriers, was vital to sustain the British Empire's status as a first-class power. Battleships, he said, were needed to counter the Soviet fleet, and, in the future, rather more bizarrely, the French. The Labour government was not impressed, 
Attlee argued forcefully that Britain was no longer America's rival on the high seas and could not maintain large fleets. Hugh Dalton, his chancellor, ordered the dockyards to give up the electricians and woodworkers he needed for the post-war home-building program. By 1948, the defence statement said that it was necessary for manpower to be brought down as quickly as possible, even though this meant a degree of disorganisation and immobility. Naval campaigners in the Commons were horrified to discover that the home fleet was down to a single cruiser and a few lesser ships. Reports came into the Admiralty of strangely apathetic crews and occasions of outright disobedience. In time, of course, the Navy readjusted to a far smaller role, particularly once the nuclear deterrent was based in its submarines, not on the RAF's airfields. But finally, the 336-year history of the Admiralty itself ended, when it was swallowed up by the Ministry of Defence. On the 31st of March, 1964, the Queen saved a salary by becoming her own Lord Admiral. The Admiralty's historian expresses institutional hurt as eloquently as it can be told. No Department of State survived so long through so many metamorphoses and vicissitudes as the Admiralty. When most of the great departments of state were born, it was already ancient. Monarchs and dynasties, statesmen and ministers, came and went. The tides of war and revolution washed over and around, constantly altering but never submerging the Admiralty. And it survived them all, counter, original, spare and strange to the last. It was the last act in the ruthless liquidation of the organisation that had been central to British identity for as long as Britain had been a single nation. Falling behind in military technology and without the strength to keep hold of her empire, the Royal Navy's time had gone. What might have happened without the extremity of the financial crisis after the American cancellation of Lend-Lease is unknowable. The government's failure to involve the country in the full grimness of the situation was made more palatable two years later with the generous American Marshall Plan aid, as Washington finally realised how far Soviet communism might advance over bankrupt and demoralised Western European nations. Britain got the largest share of that, and the immediate crisis eased. The Marshall Plan helped put all Europe back on its feet. It is still remembered as Washington's most unsordid act. Optimism about the British economy's ability to export its way back to health returned. There was a great national drive for more exports at the expense of consumption at home. The post-war world, in which so many industrial countries had been devastated, was starved of goods, so it was not hard to find export markets even for outdated British cars and unsuitable British clothing. But the politicians' habit of embarrassed deception about how things really stood would continue. Successive British Prime Ministers treated the country's weakness as a personal failing which could be hushed up. A Meeting of Remarkable Men Keynes's deal bought Labour time, yet the Attlee government was not well prepared to use it. In London, in 1945, there was nobody with experience of how to take over and then organise a peacetime economy. Ministers agreed that central planning was the way to create a more efficient economy, but the way British administration was structured made efficiency a distant dream. There was a vast sprawl of overlapping Whitehall committees, which meant slow decision-making and fudged choices. By one count, the Attlee administration employed just ten fully qualified economists, 
and this from a government which promised rule by experts. It is often, and rightly said, that the problems Labour had to grapple with were awesome, and so they were. The demolished housing and the archaic economy, the demands for swift Indian independence, the crises in Palestine and Greece, the need to demobilise so many people, the danger of starvation on continental Europe, and the need for some kind of new world order, even as the first intimations of the Cold War began. But the eventual failure of New Jerusalem's architects and orators, remarkable men and women that they were, was also caused by their inability to agree what it was they really wanted to do. The people who took charge of Britain in 1945 were as mixed a bag as any democratic government has seen. First comes Attlee himself, the model of suburban Puta, speaking so little and so tersely it drove everyone around him mad. He was the butt of some often retold Churchillian insults. An empty taxi drew up at the House of Commons, and Attlee got out, though Churchill later denied that one, and a modest little man with much to be modest about. Yet if Churchill had been formed by imperial dreams and his grand family history, Attlee was just as determined a product of Edwardian England. He had merely taken a different course, good works and mean streets, not cavalry charges and country houses. His father was a hard-working lawyer of advanced liberal views. He grew up surrounded by prayers and poetry. After his rough public school, Haleybury, near Hartford, he studied law, but was diverted by the chance of being asked to help out at the Haleybury Boys Club in the sooty, impoverished East London borough of Stepney. He stayed, and eventually joined the Independent Labour Party. Never a great speaker, he was a dog's body and organiser, cutting up bread for children, helping suffragettes, distributing leaflets and carrying banners on marches. After brave service in the First World War, he returned as Major Attlee and threw himself into London politics again, becoming Mayor of Stepney and then an MP. He became Labour leader in 1935, almost by accident. There were so few other plausible candidates in the wake of Labour's shattering election defeat of four years earlier, he was almost the last plausible leader left standing. A stopgap. He would become the most effective stopgap in British political history. No intellectual, he was a man who held things together, the ultimate chairman. He was reassuring, thoroughly English, addicted to the Times crossword, cricket, and as fond of his old public school as Churchill was of his. Before the war, he had steered the Labour Party towards moderation and away from pacifism. During the war, he tolerated Churchill's long-winded egotism and quietly directed the civilian ministries. After it, he became the watchful ringmaster for elephantine egos roaring and bellowing around him. He was never a charismatic character. One sympathetic historian judges him to have had all the presence of a gerbil. But that was part of his attraction. He defended himself against the charge that he was too moderate, quietly insisting that practical measures to boost employment, share resources fairly and plan the economy were as socialist and radical as any revolutionary could wish. Yet he was weak on economics, and when his cabinet was arguing over deep practical problems, such as the troubled programme for steel nationalisation, he had a tendency to pull back and let ministers struggle without his support. He had shafts of clear analytical insight into Britain's overstretched military commitments and the importance of house-building, but his analysis of domestic change, above all what nationalisation was really meant to achieve, was pretty thin. 
He did not offer the cheering up that ministers sometimes require, and his put-downs became legendary. When one hapless minister was summoned to be sacked, and asked, appalled, what on earth he had done wrong, Attlee looked up, pulled out his pipe, and remarked, Not up to the job. Interviewed at the start of the 1951 election campaign, he told the journalist just that he hoped to win, and now was off to a committee meeting. The interview finished thus. Interviewer. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the coming election? Attlee. No. This was an entirely characteristic exchange, and there are literally hundreds of similar examples. Yet despite all this, Attlee has gone down as a great man, loved for his limitations, not despite them. He was a staunch believer in the monarchy, and if he had misgivings about the class system, he rarely voiced them. His political conservatism is well described in a touching limerick he wrote long after losing office. Though he embodied the opposite of spin, sleaze, self-importance, or swank, he did allow himself a famous pat on the back. Few thought he was even a starter. There were many who thought themselves smarter. But he ended PM, CH, and OM, an earl, and a knight of the garter. What is touching about this is, of course, that it could equally well have been written by a hostile satirist. Clement Attlee was a strange mix of radical and paternalist. He would have made a good liberal reformer under Gladstone. Yet, half a century on, he was the right man for the time. Wartime magnifies some personalities. Similarly, peace discovers its own people. Attlee was the chairman of the peace party. But what about the rest? There were the class rebels. Sir Stafford Cripps was an intensely religious vegetarian, brilliant lawyer and sometime Marxist, obstinate, politically naive, and worryingly convinced that he was, at any given time, doing God's work, he was the most controversial upper-class socialist until the heyday of Tony Benn. In the thirties, Cripps had fallen under the spell of the charismatic leader of Britain's communists, Harry Pollitt. A colleague said of him that he started to go wild in 1931. Then, stimulated by attacks from the Tory press, and by eager cheers from our own lunatic fringe, he went wilder and wilder. He had advocated emergency powers to deal with the coming capitalist dictatorship, and zigzagged over whether rearmament would be a betrayal of the workers. In 1939 he was thrown out of the Labour Party for advocating a popular front with the Communists. Yet a year later the same Cripps was sent as Churchill's special envoy to the real Communists in Moscow. He was brought into the War Cabinet, then put in charge of aircraft production, sent to negotiate the end of British rule in India, and by the end of 1947 was Chancellor a job he performed with great grit, patriotism, and determination. It was about as strange a change as any in natural history. Throughout the war, as a former rebel, he was not even in the Labour Party, but was already famous for his rimless glasses, regime of cold baths, and doctrinaire views. He got the Churchill treatment too, famously in the cutting remark, There, but for the grace of God, goes God. In ruder mood, Churchill was said to have been approached while in the toilet by an official, knocking on the door and nervously insisting that Cripps, then Lord Privy Seal, needed to see him immediately. The Prime Minister is said to have replied, Tell Sir Stafford I am in the lavatory and can only deal with one shit at a time. He may have been affected by rumours that Cripps was plotting to replace him, the war being at a low ebb then. Cripps would later go on to suggest to Attlee that he too should quit as Prime Minister, but was quickly bought off. Then there was the loud, haw-hawing Hugh Dalton, a useful reminder of how small and interwoven Britain's political class was in the middle of the twentieth century. He was the son of the canon at Windsor, 
a clergyman so ferocious he was said to have terrified even Queen Victoria. He tutored the King Emperor George V. His son, George VI, loathed Dalton and begged Attlee not to make him foreign secretary. This was probably a service to the nation because of the extreme nature of Dalton's anti-German feelings, but the king saw Dalton merely as a turncoat, an Etonian who rebelled against his class and monarch. Dalton had started out as a Tory and switched, partly as an act of rebellion against his father. He was sexually repressed and easily depressed. The poet Rupert Brooke had been one of those he adored. My love, he said much later, is the labour movement and the best of the young men in it. Beyond anything, though, Dalton loved conspiracies. As Chancellor, he paused on his way to deliver the crucial 1947 budget and told a lobby correspondent some of its key points, allowing a London paper, the Star, to scoop his speech. This indiscretion, in Dalton's customary ear-splitting whisper, led instantly to his resignation, a blow from which he never really recovered. But Dalton had had a difficult and unsettling day until he leaked the budget, having just come from unpleasant and confrontational talks at the palace about how much money Philip and Elizabeth, the new royal couple, should get from the civil list. Perhaps he simply saw the journalist concerned, a man he knew very well, as the first friendly face of his day. The silent anti-intellectual Attlee, the Christian ex-Marxist Cripps, and the confused Dalton do not sound like the core of a coherent vision for the new Britain of 1945, but alongside them were some remarkable figures who had known rather more of life at the coal face. Attlee apart, nobody was as important in the new government as the hulking figure of Ernest Bevan, the most influential man British trade unionism has ever produced. Orphaned at eight, Ernie began as a Somerset labourer and worked his way up to become the organiser of dock workers, until in 1921 he helped merge those men into the new Transport and General Workers' Union. A powerful figure in the general strike, he ran the union until he was brought into the Churchill cabinet in 1940, a parliamentary seat being hurriedly found for him in Wandsworth. As the most powerful trade union leader of the interwar years, Bevin was a passionate anti-communist and a patriot who believed my boys in the TG were the very best of Britain. In the wartime government he had almost dictatorial powers to direct workers into factories, mines and fields. If total war consisted in gathering together a country's total human and physical resources, then directing them at the enemy, Bevin was the great director. Described by one newspaper of the time as a bad mixer, a good hater, respected by all, he could be rude enough, even to Stalin, who once hilariously whined that Mr. Bevin was no gentleman. In the post-war government, Bevin ruled almost in alliance with Attlee, both of them describing the other in fond, almost devoted terms. Attlee called it the deepest relationship of my political life. Bevin chortled about Attlee, after he had shrewdly seen off another attempted coup against the Prime Minister. I love the little man. After cabinet meetings, they would stay on together, charting the government's course. He always mistrusted intellectuals, particularly socialist ones. Reportedly, when he bumped into the famous Kingsley Martin, editor of the New Statesman, after the 1945 victory celebration, he greeted him, Hello, Gloomy. I give you about three weeks before you stab us all in the back. When Bevan died right at the end of the Attlee years, the loss was more than symbolic. He was probably the only person who could have stopped the party splitting over the rows which engulfed it because of the Korean War and military expenditure. But by then, he was too sick to help. His achievements as Foreign Secretary were enormous and controversial, 
The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, founded in 1949, depended on America's military power to provide a shield against Stalin for the shattered European democracies. Something like it would have happened, given the United States' growing fear of Soviet expansion, but the timing, precise form of the treaty, and its basic principles owed a lot to Bevin. In 1948, he began calling in private letters for an Atlantic Approaches Pact of Mutual Assistance. Its purpose was clear: to consolidate the West against Soviet infiltration, and at the same time inspire the Soviet government with enough respect for the West to remove temptation from them and so ensure a long period of peace. And so it would be. Now it all seems inevitable, but at the time Bevin was particularly clear about the nature of the Soviet threat. And withstood a storm of bitter attack from the USSR and its allies at home. More than a hundred Labour MPs abstained when the Commons voted first on NATO, and only a year before Bevin's first proposal, Cripps, for instance, had been telling officials that we must be ready at any moment to switch over our friendship from the US to Russia. Bevin is less happily remembered for his role in the bitter arguments and fighting that led to the creation of the State of Israel. Most unfairly, he is still traduced as an anti-Semite. He had, in fact, been numbered as a friend of Zionism during the war, until faced with the impossible contradictions in Britain's position in the Middle East afterwards. There, the UK was both in charge of Palestine under international mandate and had wider links to surrounding Arab countries. British officers ran the Jordanian Arab Legion, one of the instruments of Arab anger against Jewish migration. Yet British officials were in charge of the Jewish homeland too. There is no doubt that the desperate migrations of Jewish refugees were handled very badly by Britain, determined to try to limit the settlement to a level that might be acceptable to Palestinian Arabs. The worst example was the turning round of a refugee-crammed ship, Exodus, as she tried to land 4,500 people in 1947, and the eventual return of most of them to a camp in Hamburg, an act which caused Britain to be reviled around the world. This was followed by the kidnap and murder of two British soldiers by the Irgun terrorist group, which then booby-trapped their bodies. But Bevan was pressed very hard by the United States, which wanted far larger migration, and his instinct for a limited two-state solution now seems sensible. The British forces in Palestine were entirely ill-equipped for the guerrilla and terrorist campaign launched against them by Jewish groups. In the circumstances of the later forties, Bevan's position was entirely impossible. It is worth recalling, if only for a bleak balance, that Bevin was reviled by Arab opinion as vigorously as by Jewish opinion. The key to Bevin, from NATO to directing the British fight against communist insurgents in Greece, was that he believed in liberty as essential to the building of a fair society. He believed in a welfare system to keep the wolf from the door and full employment for unionized workers, which could be delivered by taking some of the economy into public ownership. Because of his huge wartime powers, he was a great believer in the state. He once told some American correspondents that he believed it was possible to have public ownership and liberty. I don't believe the two things are inconsistent. If I believe the development of socialism meant the absolute crushing of liberty, then I should plump for liberty because the advance of human development depends entirely on the right to think, to speak, and to use reason, and allow what I call the upsurge to come from the bottom to reach the top. He was a wonderful man on a huge scale. He had faults too, of course. He was as easily entranced by the old Britain of smooth mandarins and palace receptions as anyone. 
This was not, on the whole, the weakness of the next of the extraordinary men who made up the 1945 government. Anirin, or Nai Bevan, was wild, rebellious, radical, and, above all, Welsh. Not since the days of Charles James Fox, champion of the French Revolution, had the British public been confronted by a minister as divisive and flamboyant as Bevan. Like Bevin, he had been a trade union leader. Born in Tredegar in South Wales into a mining family, he too was largely self-taught. In his case, mopping up thrillers and marks in workmen's libraries and at college in London. Like Bevin, he had been an excellent organiser during the 1926 general strike. But there the comparisons between the two near namesakes end. After entering Parliament a few years later, Bevan established himself as one of the few truly great orators of the time, rare in being a worthy opponent of Churchill, who Bevan described as suffering from petrified adolescence. Unlike Attlee, Cripps, Bevin, or Dalton, he had been outside the wartime coalition government, and on many issues had seemed like a one-man opposition to it. Partly because of this, he had a far fiercer attitude to the Tories than his colleagues, and a clearer determination that Labour must build a completely new world. The nationalisation and public control of almost the whole economy was his aim. Nye Bevan spoke for the grassroots of the Labour Party, the people who expected a genuine socialist takeover of Britain. He did not believe there could be any compromise between capitalism and democracy. The Commons was an elaborate conspiracy to prevent the real clash of opinion which exists outside from finding an appropriate echo within its walls. It is a social shock absorber placed between privilege and the pressure of popular discontent. Unlike most of the other leading figures, Bevan was, at least in theory, dangerous to the established order, even if in office he would turn out to be shrewder and subtler than his ranting public performances suggested. People prejudiced against him often came away from a first meeting seduced and bewitched. Like Bevin, he showed that a trade unionist could turn into a successful national leader. Unlike Bevin, he had a vision of what Britain ought to become, which went far beyond better pay and free spectacles. He would eventually be destroyed by the hard choices and compromises ahead, resigning when spending cuts were needed and dividing himself from most of his natural supporters over the issue of nuclear weapons. Beautifully dressed, witty, sibilant, wide-ranging, sarcastic, poetic, and at times very alarming indeed, Nye Bevan represented everything that the old upper classes most feared after the 1945 election. The final great shaper of post-war Labour Britain is Peter Mandelson's grandfather. Herbert Morrison was a Cockney policeman's son, the third working-class boy to set against the Labour aristocrats. Like Gordon Brown, he was blind in one eye and an obsessive reader. He started out working in a shop, weighing out the tea and sugar. His devotion to politics took him up through the London party machine until he eventually became the minister in the first Labour government responsible for the capital's early integrated transport system. Had he not lost his seat in 1931, he would probably have become leader instead of Attlee, and hence prime minister, a loss he never ceased to regret. Instead, he went on to become the first Labour leader of the London County Council and the most prominent voice of the rising new class of public servants, small traders, teachers and shopkeepers who would become key to Labour's successes. This meant that he was a moderate, 
enough of a moderate for the young Tory MP Harold Macmillan to suggest that he lead a new centre party in the late thirties. None of this, and his long career as an organiser and fixer, endeared him to the romantics in the party. Nor was he exciting. He lived a quiet suburban life with a quiet wife he rarely spoke about and pooted around in a small car. Michael Foote described him as a soft-hearted suburban Stalin. In government, Morrison was responsible for directing the astonishing torrent of legislation, 70 bills in the first year alone. He was not, however, a great economic planner and was far too obsessed with his reputation in the press, keeping great piles of cuttings to complain about when he met editors. He was also, like his grandson, a rotten intriguer. The boy always spotted and called to the front of the class the minute he starts whispering. Yet he was popular, passionate about his voters, and hugely admired by Labour members. Had Morrison become Prime Minister, he might have been a good one. Patriots first, Socialists second. These were the six men who set Britain on its post-war course. A chaotic platoon, sentimental, reactionary, revolutionary, patriotic, and extreme all at once. A small book could be devoted just to the disobliging things they said about each other. They believed in a socialist society, but few of them seemed able to agree in detail what that meant, whether widespread nationalisation was really needed, what should be done about the public schools, whether rationing was basically a good thing or a bad thing. Marching behind them was an equally divided crowd of intellectual socialists, practical middle-class people who believed in planning, trade unionists who thought it was time for the workers to get their share, and a few committed Marxists. And behind them, watching, there were millions of Labour voters who merely hoped for a better life. This meant, in practice, welfare plus nationalisation, a consolidation and extension of the wartime directed economy, and the fair shares of the previous few years. Labour would apply the lessons of the war to the peace. After so many later disappointments, it is hard to recapture quite the sense of hope that was clearly present in the mid-forties. Nor is it easy to recall how openly and passionately proud of Britain people were. This was a government of patriots, first and socialists, second. In this, Attlee set the tone. The historian Peter Hennessy said of him that he was certainly the most understated and perhaps the most deeply, almost narrowly, English figure ever to have occupied number ten. Bevin, rooted in his union and its members, ran Attlee close. He had a deep understanding of British political history and his predecessors in government, as the American Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, later recalled. He talked to them as slightly older people whom he knew with affectionate respect. In listening to him, one felt strongly the continuity and integrity of English history. Last night, he said to me, I was reading some papers of old Salisbury. You know, he had a lot of sense. Old Palmerston, too, came in for frequent and sometimes wistful mention. With George III he was very companionable. When Sherry was brought in, he would twist around to look at the portrait. Let's drink to him, he would say. If he hadn't been so stupid, you wouldn't have been strong enough to come to our rescue in the war. Like Dalton, Bevin hated the Germans, and thought little of the Russians, and, though no imperialist, profoundly believed that Britain should take a lead role in the post-war world. The rulers of post-war Britain were far keener on the empire than one might expect of socialists. While Attlee was sceptical about the need for a large British force in the Middle East, his government thought it right to maintain a massive presence sprawling across it, 
in order to protect both the sea route to Asia and the oil fields Britain worked and depended on. Restlessly active in Baghdad and Tehran, Britain controlled Gibraltar, Malta, Cyprus, and, at the tip of the Red Sea, the world's second busiest port after New York, Aden. Throughout the forties and fifties, British conscripts and professional soldiers baked and sweated to little purpose in garrisons which bled the British treasury. When they finally went home, they left behind an unstable, unhappy part of the world, with borders like wounds scored across it. When it came to Indian independence, the whole government agreed there was no holding back. Beyond that, the Labour ministers felt strong kinship with Canadians, Australians, and New Zealanders, and assumed that most of the African colonies were decades away from self-government. They were dubious about European integration, above all because it might compromise Britain's freedom to set her own political destiny. Attlee, in characteristically terse mode, later explained his feelings about Western Europe coming together. The so-called common market of six nations know them all well. Very recently, this country spent a great deal of blood and treasure rescuing four of them from attacks by the other two. Herbert Morrison, for his part, declared that the new socialist government of Britain was friends of the jolly old empire. We are going to stick to it. Such views were widely shared. The left dreamed of a distinctly British socialism, which would in turn become a beacon to other nations. A fantasy almost imperial in its ambitious assumption. It falls oddly on the ear now, but it touched great writers such as George Orwell, fine journalists like the young Michael Foot, and many idealistic Labour foot soldiers. Virtually all the Labour family, from Attlee to the radicals at Tribune, believed that the empire should eventually be turned into a free association of democratic countries, but they assumed this could become the basis for a different kind of British power. The sterling area of countries using the pound included about a thousand million people, and was therefore seen by Whitehall as roughly equivalent to the areas of the world under American influence. There was talk of a new Commonwealth airways system linking the social democratic worldwide web of the future. An echo of this lost dream can be found in the writings of the fantasy novelist Michael Moorcock, who speculated about a liberal. Anti-racist British Commonwealth linked by huge fleets of airships. The question was how aggressively socialist was the government's post-war agenda to be? After 1940, many local Labour branches had wanted to retain robust party politics in pursuit of class war. Even as the German armies drilled on the coast of Normandy, the Labour Conference had a unanimous motion sent to it from the Halifax branch. Calling for a negotiated peace with Germany because this would be less disastrous for the workers than a military victory by this or any other capitalist government. Such sentiments were mostly squashed by the mood of national crisis, but there was a lively debate about what should happen after the war, which could not be subdued. The centrist PEP Political and Economic Planning Pressure Group said with evident pleasure that wartime conditions. Have already compelled us to make sure not only that the rich do not consume too much, but that the others get enough. New measures for improving the housing, welfare, and transport of the workers, the end of mass unemployment. In the debate about the country's war aims in 1940, the generally understated Attlee complained that while the Germans were fighting a revolutionary war for very definite objectives, Britain was fighting a conservative war. 
we must put forward a positive and revolutionary aim, admitting that the old order has collapsed and asking people to fight for the new order. A view much modified by the time he came to power. But he was not alone in 1940 in thinking that the stronger government needed for fighting total war could usefully lead to a peacetime revolution afterwards. As the new statesman put it, we cannot actually achieve socialism during the war, but we can institute a whole series of government controls which after the war can be used for socialist ends. For Labour there had been no conflict between the inspiring story of an old nation rallied against Hitler and the rational organisation of a future society. They were the same thing. As Orwell had written in 1941, in a famous essay describing England as a family with the wrong members in control, this war, unless we are defeated, will wipe out most of the existing class privileges. There are every day fewer people who wish them to continue. But it would not become Russianized or Germanized. The stock exchange will be pulled down, the horse plough will give way to the tractor, the country houses will be turned into children's holiday camps, the Eton and Harrow match will be forgotten, but England will still be England, an everlasting animal. Orwell put it far more beautifully and persuasively than most others, and of course the stock exchange, the Eton match, and the country houses survived. But his dream of a third way, building on British parliamentary traditions, plus a national instinct for restraint and fair play to make a new kind of socialist society, unknown in Russia or elsewhere, was widely shared among Labour supporters. A vision of Britain as an almost ungoverned, self-regulating place, whose people got on with their lives without interference, had survived from the 18th century, through Victorian liberalism to the instincts of many of the national government politicians of the 30s. But by 1945, in a Britain of identity cards, ration books, regulations and high taxation, it seemed to be dead. The mood was for big government, digging deep into people's lives to improve them. Yet the extraordinary thing was that within a couple of years, Attlee's peacetime revolution had lost momentum too. The optimism shriveled under economic and physical storms, and though much of the Attlee legacy survived for decades, it was nothing like the social transformation Labour socialists had hoped for. In Deepest Secret On the morning of the 11th of December, 1941, over the Gulf of Siam, a stretch of sea between Malaya and Vietnam, a single Japanese torpedo bomber flew out of the cloudless sky. Piloted by Lieutenant Iki, it dipped down towards the waves and dropped not a bomb, but a single wreath of leaves and flowers, left floating among the oil stains and debris. Nothing like this would happen again in the bloody Far East War. The wreath was a rare sign of Japanese respect for nearly a thousand dead British sailors, blown to pieces or drowned when two great warships, the unsinkable new Prince of Wales and the rather more elderly Repulse, had gone to the bottom in less than two hours, thanks to brilliantly precise and lethal torpedo attacks by the Japanese. The defeat had shocked Britain and plunged Churchill into despair. These ships were, in the words of one naval historian, symbols of the men and nation that had dominated the sea lanes of the Pacific since the days of Anson and Cook. The fall of Singapore, the psychological death blow to the British Empire, and the single worst defeat in the war for British forces followed swiftly. 
But Lieutenant Eakey's gallant action was not simply a tribute to the sunken ships, the Royal Navy generally, or even to that expiring British Empire the Japanese had long admired. It was also a tribute to an Aberdeenshire aristocrat, William Francis Forbes, the master of Semple. Semple is one of those Britons forgotten here, remembered over there. He had been a pioneer aviator who served in the Royal Flying Corps in the First World War and made a once famous early solo flight to Australia. When the two warships were sunk, he was serving with Britain's fleet air arm. A child of the British establishment, the son of an aide to George V, Semple would live on until 1965, honoured as a veteran of air warfare. So why the Japanese wreath? A quick inspection of the honours Semple received after the war would have turned up the Order of the Rising Sun. The fact was that Semple can be blamed or credited for some of Japan's awesome skill in destroying warships with torpedo-carrying aircraft, not only off Malaya, but at Pearl Harbour. He had been sent to Japan on a British mission in the twenties to help build the Japanese Naval Air Force, teaching the latest torpedo bombing techniques and advising on the design of aircraft carriers. Another British engineer had obligingly helped design one of the aircraft, which eventually developed into the feared Mitsubishi Zero. Semple was impressed by the determination of the Japanese pilots and was thanked by the then Japanese Prime Minister, who called his work almost epoch-making. By 1942, it certainly was. When Semple had trained his Japanese friends, the two countries were linked by a treaty of friendship. More recently, it has been revealed that Semple went on to spy for the Japanese as well. He was not a one-off, nor was the passing over of a vital technology from Britain a rare event. Repeatedly in the past century, Britain was involved in the early development of a breakthrough in military or industrial thinking, which went straight to enemies or rivals who developed it further and used it better. The sinking of those battleships should have caused even more soul-searching than it did. In the early years of the twentieth century, the Royal Navy had been well ahead of the Germans, Americans, and French in developing a modern submarine with guided torpedoes, despite the objection of one admiral who found it underhanded, unfair, and damned un-English. The second sea lord, Jack Fisher, a brilliant, restless, terrifying man, widely rumoured to be half Asiatic himself, pressed ahead. Yet it was Germany, first under the Kaiser and then under Hitler. Which developed the U-boat to its logical and lethal conclusion, coming very close to starving Britain into submission in both world wars. Again, it was a Royal Navy engineer and a British company, Fosters, who produced the first workable tank in 1915. They were originally called land ships, but to keep their purpose secret, factory workers in Lincoln were told they were mobile water tanks for the desert, and this was shortened to simply tank. Yet it was the Germans who turned the tank two decades later into an instrument of a new kind of warfare, by which time British tanks were comparatively outdated. As Semple demonstrated, Britain had also once been ahead with torpedo attack aircraft. In the mid-forties, Britain was far advanced with jet engines too, but again and again, deploying the new idea, actually getting it to work, was something that foreigners seemed better at. The greatest example. Is the atomic bomb? We now know that Hitler's scientists were working hard on this new doomsday weapon, and hoped to test it as early as 1944. Scientists from Italy, France, and Hungary were struggling with the physics throughout the 30s. The anguished private warning of Albert Einstein to President Roosevelt in a letter of 1939 about extremely powerful bombs of a new type 
has gone down in history. Less well known is the work of two émigré scientists a year later in a laboratory at Birmingham University. Otto Frisch and Rudolf Piles were working on the effects of using the isotope uranium-235 for a nuclear weapon. They made the theoretical breakthrough for building an effective bomb, and in 1940 hurriedly typed out a memo for the British government, an obscure paper which has been described as one of the most significant documents of the century. The government, as governments will do, set up a committee of scientists and military advisers and reported back that the scheme for a uranium bomb is practicable and likely to lead to decisive results in the war. This was shrewd enough. Thanks to Hitler's persecution of the Jews, Britain had the know-how to get ahead of Germany. But this was the year when the Blitz was at its height and the threat of invasion very real. Britain's economy was already vastly overstretched. The huge effort needed to create a nuclear industry to turn the mathematics into metal was beyond the country's technical and economic strength. So the news about the bomb was passed to the Americans. Out in the New Mexico desert, they soon leapt ahead. A new world order would swiftly follow. For a short while after the war, it looked as if Britain would stay out of the nuclear race, which seemed to the Attlee government expensive and difficult. Key ministers argued against trying to join it. Had Ernest Bevin, Britain's post-war foreign secretary, not been a prickly patriot, perhaps Britain would have stayed non-nuclear. But after being patronised by his American opposite number, Bevin told his colleagues that he wanted no British foreign secretary to be treated that way again. It was a matter of national status, said Ernie. We've got to have this thing over here, whatever it costs. We've got to have the bloody Union Jack on top of it. This was an agonising struggle, far harder than was admitted. Churchill had had a private wartime deal with President Roosevelt. Both countries would seek the other's permission before using nuclear weapons. Information would be shared. Britain would not develop civil nuclear power without Washington's agreement. This was effectively torn up by the Americans in 1946 with the McMahon Act, which prohibited the sharing of nuclear information or technology. When Attlee tried to revive nuclear cooperation after the war, the White House ignored his letter. And the U.S. copy of the secret Churchill-Roosevelt agreement was conveniently lost in the wrong file. A few years after that early breakthrough by the refugees in Birmingham, Britain was far behind the Americans, without access to their work. The decision to develop the first A bombs had been a secret even from Churchill in opposition, who later told the Commons, "I was not aware until I took office that not only had the socialist government made the atomic bomb as a matter of research." But that they had created, at the expense of scores of millions of pounds, the important plant necessary for its regular production. Though private assessments of the threat posed by the Soviet Union were drawn up within months of the end of the war, right from the start in the cabinet committee papers, there is the curious and unmistakable fact that the Soviet menace is rarely at the top of the argument about the British bomb. It is all about the Americans. First, in the Bevin years, it is about status. An old-fashioned bulldog pride. Then it becomes a matter of global strategy, something needed as leverage to influence U.S. policy. Answering the appeal of the defeated Admiralty after the war, the Mandarins bluntly admitted, "The U.K. has ceased to be a first-class power in material terms. The United States and Russia already far outstrip us in population and material wealth, and both have vast, untapped resources. Canada." India and China, to name only three, in time will certainly outstrip us.
But, they pointed out, the much more powerful hydrogen bomb was transforming the military situation around the world. If we possess these weapons, the Americans will be prepared to pay attention to our opinions in a way they would otherwise not. The same applies to our standing in the eyes of other countries, such as Germany, and our lesser potential enemies, such as Egypt, will feel that we might, if pushed too far, use nuclear weapons against them. These, concluded the Mandarins rather chillingly, are great advantages. From early on, Whitehall intelligence reports to ministers identified the peril of war being triggered by a pre-emptive strike from America, hitting the Russians before they had devised their own nuclear systems at a level which would allow them to properly retaliate. With British troops on the vulnerable front line in Germany, Britain would be thrown into the midst of the new war for which she was not prepared. Persuading the Americans to stay their hand might be easier, the British policymakers suggested, if Britain was herself an independent nuclear power. In the summer of 1947, work began in deepest secret to build a plutonium-producing plant at Windscale, a little place on the coast of Cumbria, and work started on designing a bomb under the guidance of one of the British scientists who had been at Los Alamos, William Penny. A few years later, the tiny Berkshire village of Aldermaston, with its 12th-century church, brick labourers' cottages and ancient Roman defences, which had been looking forward to quieter times with the closure of an airbase, was chosen as the site for Britain's nuclear weapons programme. More money spent on defence and status was, of course, less money available for a new Jerusalem. A Winter Landscape the winter of 1947 has gone down in history and personal memory as a time of almost unendurable bleakness. For three months, Britain seemed more like one of the grimmer scenes in a medieval Flemish painting. It was not only the shortages of almost everything in the shops, and what was described as a virtual peasant diet, heavily based on potatoes and bread, though by then even the bread had now been rationed and potatoes ran short. It was not only the huge state bureaucracy, still interfering in so much daily life, controlling everything from how long you could turn your heater on to what plays you could see and whether or not you could leave the country. It was not the 25,000 regulations and orders never seen in peacetime before, administered by a government which, though anti-communist, still urged people to learn from the colossal industrial achievements of Soviet communism. It was not the smashed and broken homes. It was not even all those war dead, for this war had involved far fewer soldiers than the First World War, and far fewer dead, 256,000, as against nearly a million, as well as the 60,000 British civilians who had died in air raids. Relief at the final victory was still strong across the country, and pride in Britain's part in it. No, the crisis of 1947 was set off by that most humdrum of British complaints, the weather. At the end of January, with an efficiency the Red Army could not have mustered, a great freeze had swept across from Siberia and covered the country in thick snow, a bitter cold which brought the exhausted British very nearly to their nobbly ill-clad knees. The country still ran on coal, but at the pits the great piles of coal froze solid and could not be moved. The winding gears ceased to function. Drifting snow blocked roads and closed the rail lines. At the power stations, the remaining coal stocks ran swiftly down until, one by one, power stations began to close. Lights flickered off. Men dug through snowdrifts, tramping for miles to find food to carry back to their neighbours and homes. Cars were marooned on exposed roads. 
With shortages of power, factories across the south and midlands of England had to stop work, and within a week, two million people were idle. Attlee suspended that still unusual middle-class diversion: television. Much worse, electric fires were banned for three hours each morning and two each afternoon. Everywhere, people shivered, wrapped in blankets in front of barely smoking coal fires, or those rationed electric ones. Around London, commuters were completely unable to reach the capital. Scotland was cut off from the rest of the country. Then things deteriorated further. It was the coldest February for three hundred years. Another half million people had to stop work. One young office worker from Slough, Maggie Joy Blunt, recorded herself sitting in her house, the water in wash basins frozen, looking out at the ice blue sky. I am wearing thick woolen vest, rubber roll-on. Wool panties, stockings, thick long-sleeved wool sweater, slacks, jacket, scarf, and two pairs of woolen socks. I am just about comfortable. The sun was so little seen that when it came out briefly, a man rushed to photograph the reassuring sight for the newspapers. Green vegetables ran out in the shops. Christ, it's bleeding cold! Howled the future novelist Kingsley Amis to the poet Philip Larkin from his Oxford student rooms. After a short fall, March had brought terrible storms and snowdrifts thirty feet high. People talked about snowflakes the size of five shilling coins. There were ice floes off the East Anglian coast. Three hundred main roads were unusable. Still to come were the worst floods in memory, cutting off towns, inundating huge areas of low-lying England, and destroying the crops in the fields. On the hills, the sheep were dying. Their carcasses would be piled into pyres. Causing foul-smelling smoke to hang over rural Wales, a precursor to the foot and mouth and BSE episodes of later decades. It was, in short, about as near as this country has been to experiencing at first hand a truly Siberian winter, though without the sturdy boots, furs, and vodka that helped the Russians get through. It would be followed by the real political storm. The run on the pound made inevitable by the Keynes deal in Washington and a balance of payments crisis. As people were digging out frozen vegetables from fields and despairing of the empty shops, the Treasury was finally running out of dollars to buy help from overseas. This was the moment when the optimism of 1945 shivered and died among many voters. Summer did come, as summer does, and it was a good summer. The sun shone. Cricketers blazed away at Lords, and a nation sweltered. Economically, though, Hugh Dalton's year of misery continued. The clauses negotiated by Keynes, insisting that sterling should become freely convertible to American dollars, were triggered, and the inevitable happened. The world rushed to change pounds into greenbacks, and such was the outflow that convertibility had to be hurriedly stopped. The economy was simply too weak. A message that echoed round continental Europe's finance ministries too. British housewives might have been more worried still had they known of a secret plan during the sterling crisis drawn up by the civil servant Otto Clark, father of the later new Labour minister Charles Clark. With Britain running out of dollars to buy food from America, Clark drew up preparations for a famine food program, including taking children out of school to help in the fields. It never came to that, but the rationing of bread. Which had not been necessary during the war was now in place. There was not enough cash left to buy wheat supplies from the United States. Yet British ministers had to ensure there was no actual famine in other parts of the world for which they were responsible, including India 
and defeated Germany. The answer, bread rationing at home, was hugely unpopular and long remembered. Along with the sterling crisis and the subsequent devaluation in 1949, a further but necessary humiliation, it gave Churchill's Tories the essential ammunition they needed to turn Attlee out. Their manifesto would later remind voters that in 1945, the Socialists promised that their methods of planning and nationalisation would make the people of Britain masters of their economic destiny. Nothing could be more untrue. Every forecast has proved grossly over-optimistic. Every crisis has caught them unawares. The fuel crisis cost the country £200 million and the convertibility crisis as much. The next year, though, the government did try to cheer the country up, holding the 1948 London Olympics. Cost overruns were trivial. Security was barely an issue. The Games were a triumph of determination in a war-scarred, rubble-strewn city, during which the athletes were put up in old army camps and hospitals, and the Union Jack was missing for the opening parade. And though the medal toll for British competitors was very meagre, holding the Games was a genuine sign that Britain was back. For all its weaknesses, this was still a country that could organise itself pretty well. The sun also sets. The deep, nostalgic vision of empire was dented too in 1947. The king ceased to be emperor. The jewel in the imperial crown, India, was moving towards independence long before the war. Gandhi's brilliant insight that through non-violence the British could be embarrassed out of India more effectively than they could be shot out had paid off handsomely in the interwar years. London was dragged to the negotiating table despite the attempts by Churchill and others to scupper every deal from the 30s to the late 40s. The war delayed independence but showed how much goodwill there was on the subcontinent if Britain was wise enough to withdraw gracefully. During the conflict, some two million Indians fought on Britain's side or served her forces directly, their contributions being particularly strong in the campaigns in North Africa against the Italians and defeating a pro-German regime in Iraq. Gandhi himself was sentimentally fond of Britain and saddened by the Luftwaffe attacks on London. While Nehru was in prison, he kept a picture of his old school, Harrow, in his cell. Yet many Indians had become frustrated by endless delays and the watering down of plans for more autonomy. Leaders out of jail organised a massive wartime protest involving the burning of police stations, the beating of British residents, the cutting of telegraph lines and the blowing up of a railway line. For a while, British control of India hung in the balance, though the true story of what was happening was kept out of newspapers at home. Less dangerous, if more spectacular, was the formation of an anti-British Indian National Army under Subhash Chandra Bose, armed and supported by the Japanese. Indians were used to guard captured British troops, a humiliation designed to spread the Japanese line that this was essentially a war of Asian people against colonial Westerners. When the pro-Japanese Indians returned home after the defeat of Japan, Britain wanted them prosecuted as traitors, but they were greeted as heroes by Gandhi's Congress party. As soon as Attlee took power, his government organised talks on withdrawal. Anti-imperialism had been a genuine strand in Labour thinking since the party's formation, but now there were other motives too. There was gratitude for Indian support for the empire at its worst moment. There was also fear the clear evidence that delaying independence would result in mass and probably uncontrollable protest. 
Atli wanted a united, independent India, Muslims and Hindus in one vast state connected by trade and military agreement with Britain. Apart from anything else, he believed this would function as a major anti-communist bulwark in Asia, at just the time when the Russians were looking south and China was in revolutionary turmoil. Atli would get some of what he wanted, but not all. Sir Stafford Cripps led the first Labour delegation to post-war India, but it was not socialist politicians who negotiated the end of British control in India. That job was begun by Field Marshal Wavell, a veteran of the Boer and First World Wars, who had served with the Tsarist Russians before fighting the Italians successfully, and Rommel less so in the desert. He had come to India as commander-in-chief just ahead of the most decisive Japanese advances and had succeeded as viceroy in time to free the Congress leaders from prison. But this poetry-loving and mildly pessimistic soldier was unsuccessful in trying to reconcile Hindus and Muslims. Sectarian mobs began to attack one another, the first flickers of the communal violence which would soon ravage the subcontinent. Early in 1946, there was a major mutiny by the Royal Indian Navy, when about a quarter of its strength aboard ships off Bombay, Calcutta and Madras raised Congress flags. It was put down with hundreds dead, but trouble spread to the Royal Indian Air Force and the police, and it looked as if authority was finally crumbling. Wavell's last-ditch plan involved British withdrawal without any political agreement, evacuating whites from the country and handing it over to local state governments. This was regarded in London as likely to lead to civil war and fundamentally dishonourable. Attlee passed the job to Lord Louis Mountbatten, who had been supreme commander in Southeast Asia, organising the reconquest of Burma. It was a wily choice. Mountbatten was a member of the royal family, and his nephew, a naval officer, Prince Philip of Greece, was about to marry the young Princess Elizabeth, so he was a hard man for the imperialists at home to attack. Dashing and arrogant, he shared Atlee's determination to get a swift deal with the leaders of the Muslim and Hindu peoples, which meant with Muhammad Ali Jinnah's Muslim League and Nehru's Congress Party. Jinnah was always hard for the British to deal with or like, and was by now close to death, but Nehru proved an easier partner, forming a famously close attachment to Mountbatten's wife, Edwina. Partitioning the subcontinent was by now inevitable. Muslims would not accept overall Hindu domination, and yet across most of India the Hindus or Sikhs were in the majority. British India was duly split into Muslim Pakistan, a made-up name, an anagram of Punjab, Afghania, Kashmir, Sindh and Baluchistan, the key provinces, and Hindu-dominated India. The line was drawn up by a British lawyer, Sir Cyril Radcliffe, and kept secret until after the handover of power. Mountbatten announced to widespread surprise and shock that independence would happen ten months earlier than planned, on the 15th of August, 1947. Churchill was so appalled that his former foreign secretary and friend, Anthony Eden, had to keep him away from the Chamber of the Commons. Having listened to the parliamentary statement, Enoch Powell was shattered enough to wander the streets of London all night, squatting in doorways with his head in his hands. No doubt millions of other British people felt equally that their familiar world was coming apart. And while the speed of British withdrawal may have been a political necessity, the consequences were appalling. By some counts, a million people then died, many of them women and children, as Muslims and Hindus caught on the wrong side of the new border fled from their homes. Sikhs rose against the Muslims in the Punjab, Muslims drove out Hindus. Rather, as in Yugoslavia after the collapse of communism, 
It turned out that the old central power had merely frozen and held in suspension older religious and ethnic rivalries, which revived at a moment of crisis. As some 55,000 British civilians returned home, the Indian army was hurriedly divided into two. Mountbatten had hoped for a close military alliance to continue, and Karachi had even been earmarked as a base for British atomic bombers to use in attacking Russia. But no military deal could be agreed. Eventually, Pakistan broke up, with Bangladesh declaring herself independent and succumbed to a history of coup and dictatorship. Today, India and Pakistan face each other with nuclear weapons and large armies across their Kashmiri frontier. Britons have been told that as compared to the war in Algeria, which tore post-war France apart, or the Americans' desperate war in Vietnam, Britain managed decolonization rather well. It is too comfortable a conclusion. Who was to blame for the horrifying number of Indian deaths? Far more, for instance, than have died during the mayhem in Iraq. British post-war weakness probably meant that it would have been impossible to impose a single state at the time of independence. Yet, Jinnah's Muslim League and Congress had been nearer to a mature deal before the war. Had Churchill and others not stymied independence in the 30s by cynically supporting the cause of the semi-independent Indian princes, then perhaps the slaughter would have been averted. Against that, the story of the Second World War would have been very different too. And today's India, linked by English and a growing democratic superpower, stands as one of the more successful of Britain's old imperial possessions. Indian independence was a trauma to some, a relief to many more. Labour ministers were less enthusiastic about dismantling the empire in Africa. Officials wrote minutes to Attlee's ministers, informing them it might take many generations before some of the colonies were ready for independence. Herbert Morrison, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, agreed. He said that to give the African colonies their freedom would be like giving a child of ten a latchkey, a bank account and a shotgun. Attlee himself speculated about creating a British African army on the lines of the lost Indian one to help project British power around the world. The colonial office described Africa as the core of Britain's new world position from where she could draw economic and military strength. In the early 50s, the colonial office itself grew in numbers and was even hoping for a large new headquarters opposite Parliament Square, promised to it by Churchill. There was a grand scheme for growing groundnuts in Tanganyika to provide cheap vegetable oil for Britain, though that was a swift and embarrassing failure. For a while, it seemed that the Raj would be transplanted in fragmented form to Africa. End of Disc 2